A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. We've got a two-part podcast for you today. In the second half, Dan Cavallari is going to interview Maurizio Bellin, the Chief Operations at Pinarello, and Federico Sbrissa, Pinarello's Chief Marketing Officer, to talk about Pinarello's two new lineups for 2023, the F and the X series. I would very much like to have either or both of those things. But first, I've got James Start on the line to talk about the Tour de France. We're talking on Sunday evening... Uh, on the eve of the first rest day of the Tour de France. And James has spent the day on the Puy de Dôme, which is uh, probably an enviable situation to be in. And James, judging by the signal we've got, I presume you're off the mountain now. I'm off the mountain. I'm in a little hotel in the centre of uh, Clermont. Yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that. It's a small hotel and it's in the centre of Clermont, none of which are, are too enthralling, but it's the Tour de France. So I'll walk around Clermont t- tomorrow and, and try to get a better idea of this town. I'll be honest, I don't know it very well. You've been a lot more polite about the hotel than you were before we went on air because you described it as a dive. But that is the Tour de France. You have the dizzying highs and terrifying lows and that extends to your accommodation. But James, I was reading up on Clermont-Ferrand, which is a city dear to my heart So I spent a year living not far from there. We spent some time there ourselves recently. But I found a, a quote by a man called Esprit Fléchier, who was the Bishop of Nîmes. And he said about Clermont-Ferrand that there is scarcely a town in France more disagreeable. But you Hmm. take issue with him on that, don't you? Yeah, well, there is um, Saint-Étienne. It can get worse. And then there's little smaller towns like Alès and stuff like that, which are, well, I don't want to go there. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll see your Saint-Étienne and raise you Lord. But um, I know that the restaurants of France operate a very strict cut-off time stricter even than the Tour de France, so I won't keep you too long. Just a quick one, before we talk about the race so far, how was today on the Puy de Dôme? It was pretty great, I'll be honest with you. You know, Ed, uh, we have been uh, anticipating this day for so long. It's been kind of nerve-wracking because the Tour was not able to furnish us with really clear information about how we're going to access it, how we're going to get up there, if we're going to be able to get up there. And then it looked like, you know, as long as we got to the foot of it, to the train, by two o'clock would be okay. Well, I didn't trust that. And I got there at about 11.30 because there were earlier trains. And fortunately, I did because apparently last night they circulated a list. But I wasn't on that mailing list to sign the list. 
So I had to plead and bargain. And they actually called the uh, site director of the Puy de Dome to make an exception for a couple of photographers who didn't get that mail. But I finally got up there and then we just had about five hours to sit and wait for this bike race to come. But it was pretty interesting because it's such an epic stage, so much anticipation going into it. It's a pretty stunning site, as you and I recall being up there uh, about a month ago. And yet it was quiet and we were there all alone pretty much because, you know, they, there was, they let only about 200 Tour de France staff people up there. So it was kind of special. And uh, the weather looked a bit nicer than last time we were up. When we went up to research our feature, A Lighthouse, which is in the current edition of Ruler, it was about two degrees, very strong winds, rain, cloud, mist, um, occasional views of the landscape below. It looked a lot nicer today. Well, it was a fantastic day to go up and photograph when, when you and I went up there. Much better than today. Today, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, which is... It's great in some ways, but I mean, there was so atmospheric when we were up there. It was changing all the time. The fog would roll in. Then we get a splotch of sun. I mean, we couldn't have asked for better conditions photographically. There was just so much drama in the sky. It was a lovely day up there. It really was. And Ed, and Ed, I want to say the train driver that took that drove us up and that we interviewed saw me and I said, oh, Ruder Magazine. Ah, and I said, well, Ed's not here. I said, oh, please tell him I said hi. So you have a hello from the train engineer of the tramway that takes you up to the Puig Domed. That's great. You can uh, check out our podcast from last week in the Rulo podcast series where we interviewed the train driver on the web. And also you can read the feature that James and I came up with, which remains relevant after today's stage because it was a story about the wider context, history, relevance and meaning of the Puig Domed. That's in the current edition of Rulo number 120. But let's look at the tour as a whole as we stand on the first rest day. So, I, James, I usually tuss and frown when people say how great the tour has been in some years because I'm always very conscious that there are good tours and bad tours. And, you know, we're cycling fans. We like cycling. So every tour to an extent is a good one. It's a positive thing. But there are good tours and bad tours. And I think that if you describe a bad tour as great, there's nowhere to go when you actually have a great one. But my only feeling about this year's race is that it's shaping up very nicely. We go into the rest day with Jonas Vingegaard in yellow, Tadej Pogacar just 17 seconds behind. And OK, everyone else is miles behind. But what I'm enjoying so far, James, is that both Vingegaard and Pogacar have in turn looked strong and had off days. And the off days haven't been disastrous, so I'm talking comparatively, but in our preview podcast for the Tour de France, James, we were, t we were going on about 1989, and I always go on about 1989, so this is no different. But what we both agreed on with that year's tour was what was great about it. It was not necessarily how close it was, though that was obviously also a brilliant thing, but how the main protagonists, Greg LeMond and Laurent Fignon, have alternated their good and bad days. And the entire tour was just a ding-dong battle back and forth all the way from Luxembourg to Paris. And look here, because Jonas Vingegaard looked to have it all sewn up in the first Pyrenean stage to La Rousse, I was thinking, well, stage five, the tour is done. But since then, Pogacar has come back. The very next day, he squeezed time back out of him in Cotaret and then did the same again on the Puy de Dome. So overall, James, it's actually looking pretty good, isn't it? It's a pretty good tour, I've got to say. It really might come to that last uh, mid-mountain stage or, you know, last time trial. Nobody really has a grip on it. 
I thought that uh, the climb today was really going to play into to Pogacar's hands. But then I ran into my friend Christian Vanderveld yesterday at the finish. You know, that guy was a pro for, what, 12, 14 years or something. Raced a few tours to France himself. And he said, oh, I think the steep, steep climbs are much better for Vingegaard and he handles the heat better. And I said, oh, huh, I didn't think that. I thought I would have given the steep climbs to Pogues. So nobody quite really knows what to make of, of either of them. But it's been a tremendous last couple of days with Pogacar just clawing back seconds here and seconds there and not giving up and is very much in this race. And it's fascinating because, yeah, Vingegaard has the yellow jersey, but I sense he wasn't real happy today at the finish because he did lose another time. And it's the second time Pogacar has attacked and he hasn't quite been able to hold. What's that going to mean when they get into the Alps? I don't know. I think it's safe to say that Pogacar kind of has, has him on the ropes right now. Uh, I think that psychologically he's got an advantage, even though physically, in terms of time, he's down right now. But we'll see. You know, Jumbo's still a very strong team. Uh, and Pogachar still has to drop Vingegaard enough to take the lead and, and even take the lead with a little bit of cushion because I wouldn't want to go into that last time trial against Vingegaard on even uh, uh, scale, even though, you know, Pogues could be just as good. But you want to have a little cushion going in that TT. There have been, well, three and a half sprint stages, I guess. The stage into Limoges was different kind of sprint because it was uphill. But those sprint stages, really, they've been, apart from Mads Pedersen's win in Limoges, only two stories in town. There's Jasper Philipson and his three stage wins and the incredible work that his team, especially Mathieu van der Poel's done, and then Mark Cavendish. So let's, uh, let's talk about those two riders. Jasper Philipson, looking like... He's emerging into the dominant sprint of the tour, isn't he? I think he is. Yeah, I think he's the fastest rider. You know, that either you get a guy who puts his stamp on the sprints early and is clearly the man to beat, or it's just there's a lot of back and forth, and then maybe somebody will scrape two or three wins out over the whole time. But you know, he's he's got what three wins in a second. He's clearly flying. He's he's clearly the fastest. So he's definitely the guy to beat. He won five out of the last six bunch sprints of the tour, which is not bad going. So I think he won the last two bona fide bunch sprints last year. Also, those two stages were sandwiched around him coming second behind Christophe Laporte when Laporte won uh, in Cahors by jumping away. So Philipson was the fastest bunch sprint that day as well. So the, the three last bunch sprints of that Tour de France last year, Philipson was first and then first out of the sprint behind Laporte and then first on the Champs-Élysées. This year, he's won three times and comes second. So, you know, that's even more impressive, actually. In, in seven bunch sprints at the Tour de France, he's had five wins, two second places. I think there's no doubt that he's the best. And also, this year, what's made him look even better is that lead-out that he has from Mathieu van der Poel is... It's up there with the best lead-outs I've ever seen in my life, I think. Van der Poel is so, so good at doing that job that when he jumps, the other sprinters aren't really keeping up with him and he's the lead-out guy. So if Philipson can stay in van der Poel's wheel up to that 600, 500 metres to go point, he wins the stage as far as I can see. Who would not dream of of Matthew Vanderpool as your lead-out guy? He's a one-man lead-out train. And he's committed to doing it, which is amazing. It says so much about who he is 
as a champion because he came in here looking for some glory of his own and he hasn't come up with it. You know, he's just been riding for, for these killer lead outs. And he's like, well, my rider is so good that that's what I need to be doing. I'd look at this on stage three, I guess it was, the first stage that Philipson won. Very chaotic sprint. This was the stage into Bayonne. And very, very, very chaotic approach to the line. Yeah, the last 10K were very, very chaotic. Riders everywhere, all over the place. What I noticed, looking back over it, and I did a little Twitter thread about this on my feed as well, which is Twitter at Edward Pickering. What I noticed was that there was a capsule of four Alpazin de Koenig riders which stuck together like glue. It was like they were the centre of the universe and everything else was moving and rotating around them. They, they were staying perfectly still. I got a screen grab of them with 4.2 kilometres to go and there were four of them just there. And it's not the old days where you'd have eight or nine riders in a line doing a lead out. These days, lead outs tend to be three, four riders and they stick together and then make their move. So 4.2 to go, there were four of them in a row. 3.1 to go, there was four of them in a row. Down to three with two and a half kilometres to go, but they were still very much all together. 1.6 to go, there were three of them, probably about four wheels back, which is just perfect. Going into the final kilometre, they made their move, went under the kilometre to go flag in first, second and third place. Dropped down to Van der Poel and Philipsen with 500 to go, which when Van der Poel made his move. And then Philipsen jumped off Van der Poel. It's just absolutely unbeatable. And that was the most aesthetically and tactically perfect sprint of the tour so far. But as I said, Philipsen's won three now. Um, and it's going to be, now he's got that psychological advantage and also Cavendish being out of the race. The remaining sprints of the race, he's so much going to be the favourite now. It's going to be very hard for the other teams to combat that other than they'll probably start to make it chaotic by trying to prevent a bunch sprint even happening. But that's Jasper Phillips and Mark Cavendish from the ridiculous to the very sad, really, wasn't it? Because he probably lost that sprint into Bordeaux because of mechanical issues. His bike was skipping gears. And you can argue about whether Philipson would have come round him or not at the end, but he was looking pretty good at that point. That cost him that stage and then crashing out in one of those innocuous little crashes where one or two riders goes down at 40, 45 kilometres an hour and out of the race, broken collarbone. Yeah. Uh, so it was just, uh, what can you do? You know, Cavendish is, he's, you know, it is kind of epic Cavendish. He's so good when he's good. And then, you know, he can have such, you know, disaster like this. And, you know, he's had a lot of hard crashes in his career, but yeah, I mean, there's already talk that, that he might actually sign on for, they might, Astana's happy with him and they might try to get him to sign on for you know, at least a half a year to get through the tour. And, well, how great would that be? I'll be interested to see whether he does that. I sense it will be a more complicated decision than that. You know, he's got to come back from this injury. It's quite a comp- it sounds like quite a complicated fracture. It's going to take some time to come back from another year at, at his age. Then again, as we know, as we always say, never write off Mark Cavendish. So I will be interested to see where he goes. But I was fascinated to watch whether he was going to win a stage this tour. And I feel cheated, not because he has or hasn't won one of those stages, but just because we're going to be denied the opportunity to see whether he can. Because it, for me, it's such a fascinating story. He's such a 
huge personality and he's been one of the defining riders since 2007 which is 17 tours 16 years and I'm more disappointed by the fact that we've been denied the opportunity to see him go for it than the actual crash itself. Absolutely. You know, and you never write off Mark Cavendish. And I would love to have seen what he could do. I, I sense that he really smelled the blood in Bordeaux. And he's like, he really was aware that he could do this. And I was more convinced after Bordeaux that he was going to match that record. And I think even though he doesn't want to make a big deal of it, I think that record's pretty special and he knows he has a rare opportunity. Come on, Mark, give us six more months, huh? The retirement age in France is 64. I just would like you to know, okay? It's true. Although in some ways, I think it would be 100% cycling if the greatest sprinter the sport has ever seen did quietly climb into the back of an ambulance and drive away from the race. It just illustrates the dizzying highs, terrifying lows, and also the kind of bathos of the Tour de France. But let's go back to the GC battle, James. Let's talk a bit about the Pyrenees first. Jonas Vingegaard looked to have it completely sewn up on the stage to La Rons, stage five, which I thought was probably the most straightforward mountain stage of the race. And he killed everybody. Was your sense then that Vingegaard was making a real statement of intent and killing the Tour? Well, I think he certainly was. But I don't know how many times I have seen that. One guy gets an advantage one day... And they generally confirm it the next day, I would say. And if they, you know, dominate one day, that probably a guy who is suffering generally struggles to recuperate a little bit more and generally uh, has another bad day or is, 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 is not up to par. But I was not going to say that because of who we're talking about. And this is Pogachar. If there's one guy that could turn the tables, for me, it's him. I agree with you. I mean, in the last decade or so, when riders have struck hammer blows, you know, in the first half of the Tour de France, think back to Froome, Nibali, Geraint Thomas when he won the Tour, um, and Pogacar with his second Tour win, and Vingegaard last year, they've struck that blow and then that is it, isn't it? There have been some exceptions. 2019, Egan Bernal won the Tour coming up at the end of the race, and obviously Pogacar won in 2020 with a very late turnaround against Roglic. This happened in last year's tour as well, that when that first hammer blow happens, that is it. And I was thinking, the information I know is that last year, Vingegaard, you know, did what he did to Pogacar on the Col du Granel. Pogacar tried to attack in the next one, Alpes didn't leave a mark, and that was that. I was thinking, well, here we are. Vingegaard has struck the blow on the Col de Marie Blanc on the way to Lagos, and that is that. Shows how much we know, doesn't it? Because the very next day, Pogacar struck back. But the interesting thing was that Pogacar struck back, gained, was it 20, 25 seconds? I can't remember exactly what the exact time gap was. It was a decent chunk of time. Um, yeah. But it was after Jumbo Visma had done a lot of work to, I think, set up Vingegaard to finish the job. They absolutely did. Um, you know, I think they absolutely thought that they were going to get it, you know, that they had them on the ropes. And I think they really wanted to maximize that first week because they knew, I think, you know, on paper, a guy's coming back from a broken wrist, hasn't really raced. If you're going to get Pogachar cornered, it's early in the race. And I think they said, we got him on the ropes. Let's do it. I was up on the Tourmalet and, and all the photographers were all going do we stand on the Tourmalet or do we go up to Couturet? You know, if we go to Couturet, we know we're going to get the winner. The Tourmalet is only going to work, really, you know, if they're going for it. 
And if they're not going for it, it's just a pack of 30 guys riding through. Well, that might not be the best the best shot. Well, guess what? They were going for it. They did all that work. I think Kelderman and then Sepkus just burned everybody off apart from Vingegaard and Pogacar and Hindley briefly, but he soon had to go back. And at the top of the climb, there was Vingegaard and Pogacar with Wout van Aert ahead. And that was the plan, wasn't it? The plan was Sepkus to put Vingegaard in a position to link up with Wout van Aert. But I think they needed Pogacar not to be with Vingegaard over the Tourmalet because all Pogacar had to do from that point was sit in. And all they knew was that Pogacar was weak the day before and this was a chance to finish the job. Or they could have thought, well, Pogacar's looking a bit perkier today. Maybe we should wait. But that's bike racing, isn't it? It's easy to say with hindsight whether they should have done this or that. But I think, you know, once they're committed, they just carried on through and assumed that Vingegaard would be able to tuck Pogacar away away on the climb to Cotteret and effectively finish the tour with less than a week gone. Thankfully for us, less thankfully for Jonas Vingegaard and Jomo Visma, it was not the case. And Pogacar struck back, didn't gain all the time back that he'd lost the day before, but he certainly hurt Vingegaard that day, didn't he? I say, you know, bravo to Jumbo for, for taking that initiative, not playing it safe. And then Pogacar, of course, in the Puy de Dome stage today, put another eight seconds into Vingegaard. But just a quick word for Mike Woods, who did end up winning the stage. Classic milers pacing there. You know, he, he used to be a, a mile runner, 1500 meter specialist, uh, track and field athlete. And the best pacing strategy, James, as you know, as a former runner, for the mile is to run the fastest at the end. You run a fast lap at the start, consolidate laps two and three, and a fast finish is what wins you the mile. And so it proved today. He sat tight. He had a fast start getting into the break. He consolidated. He got gapped when the attacks went, but it was a tactical, not a physical gap there. And then he finished fast on steep climbs. He's very, very good and finished the job. It was brilliant because we, we were set, sitting at the finish line. I think, I think it kind of, we kind of wrote him off, which was a mistake. And then he just took those last 4K and just, boy, did he go hard. And, you know, as soon as you saw him just riding through the different groups, you're like, okay. Uh, Jorgensen's in trouble. Jorgensen had been out alone for quite a long time. So, I mean, he was he was saying, okay, uh, a la pedal, uh, if we just go into the foot of this climb, I'm not going to be able to ride away from these guys. But if I can get myself a minute, and he had like a minute 22, then maybe I can hold it. And that's what he's trying to do. And he came close, came close, uh, but it was brilliant. But, uh, you know, and then behind her, there was the dynamic duo doing their best job to do their best impression and interpretation or impersonation of Jack Ancotil and, and Raymond Poulidor. You mentioned Ancotil and Poulidor there, James. Any resonances for you echoing through the decades? Yeah, um, there were actually. I think, well, in, in some ways, you know, it was a little anticlimactic because they didn't come over that final climb lock, locked in. But I actually uh, had just interviewed Rafael uh, Gemignani who was Akatil's director sportif, and he was in the team car behind that, and he described it very well. And it was actually very similar. I mean, you had the two prime challengers, the two prime contenders for the tour, 
locked into this battle. And all right, it didn't look like for much of the day that they were side by side today like they were um, in 1964, but they were like right there together. And it was only like in the last seven, 800 meters, 900 meters that Pulidor finally was able to get away from him. And behind, you know, Anquetil was just trying to, to maintain, ride within himself and keep it. And it's kind of what happened today. Pogachar finally gets away at, what, 700 meters, uh, you know, and he was struggling. I mean, he had five meters for I don't know how long. Yeah, then he had 10 meters and 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 Vingegaard just wouldn't give in. He finally cracked a little bit, but he only gave up, what, eight seconds. And, and so actually the way the two uh, rivalries, the two duels played out was kind of similar. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah, the next two weeks will tell which one is Onkatil and which one is Pulidor. Uh, James, how's the tour been on a photography level for you so far? Well, the, t- the tour always provides so many opportunities, uh, more than you can ever hope to seize. I've been pretty happy with my photography so far. I've had good shots almost every day. I think, yes, every day I've had uh, a, a shot I'm pretty happy with or very happy with. But I always come out of the tour with a couple of my best shots of the year, the ones I'm going to submit to the different competitions, the ones I'm really proud of. And I don't know that I have that yet. I would say not. It's, I've had it's consistently good photography. I'm happy, but I need to up my game yet again. And I still have two weeks to do it. So <laughs> it's I'm playing the long game here. Still two weeks to go. Well, you can see James's photography um, on the ruler.cc website, along with all our tour reportage, we've got uh, all our writers uh, writing daily pieces. We're doing reflections on the on the race, on the strategies, on the tactics, on the wider meaning of the race, and doing some in-depth features as well. That's all on ruler.cc. James, enjoy your rest day. Um, we're going to take a short break now before we go on to the rest of the podcast with Dan Cavallari. We'll be talking with Maurizio Bellin, and Federico Sbrisa of Pinarello. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. The Tours de France are here. They're the greatest races in the world, and you can see every unmissable moment on GCN+. I'm not actually going out for much of the Tours this year, so I'm really looking forward to being able to watch every stage from start to finish, ad-free, and for those days where life gets in the way of a cycling fan's real priorities, I can catch up at any time, because there are full replays of both races on demand. For the really busy, there is a selection of tailored highlight packages. You can go for long, short, or just the final kilometres. And as a cycling journalist, one of the most useful features is the ability to pause and rewind the live coverage. And this feature is great for trying to work out what's happened and why. You can also take the action with you if you're out and about. You can watch GCN Plus on any device. GCN Plus have brilliant commentators and co-commentators and an expert panel of knowledgeable ex-pros who will dissect and analyse the action, but also convey the fun and passion of the tours. And you can relive the best moments and biggest talking points on the weekly World of Cycling show, and this airs throughout the season. If that's not enough, you can get all the pre-race information you need with previews, route maps, profiles and start lists all available on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all year round, with coverage of all the biggest races from the road, cyclocross, track and MTB seasons. You'll also have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films covering all aspects of the sport, from chats with legends through epic adventures to record-breaking challenges. There are already 150 titles, with more being added every week. 
A GCN subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. This episode of Ruler Conversations is also brought to you by BMC. At Ruler, we've been listening to a few other great cycling pods, and we want to share one of our favourites with you. The Rider's Digest, powered by BMC, takes you into the world of bikes with unparalleled access to everything. From getting inside the World Tour and Mountain Bike World Cups, through to on-the-ground access at some of the biggest events. They also take deep dives into industry secrets and cutting-edge bike tech. Champion riders like Fabian Cancellara, Cadell Evans and Greg Van Avermaet are familiar voices on the pod and they're mixed in with some next level sound design to bring you right into the visceral world of cycling. If you want to experience a different perspective on the cycling world, then search for the Riders Digest wherever you get your podcasts or hit the link in our show notes. And now, back to Rouleau Conversations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rulure Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you all the way from Colorado here in the United States, where it is a sunny, beautiful day. And like most of you, I am getting ready to watch the Tour de France in just a few more days. And I love Tour de France time as a tech dork because it's when all these new bikes and tech bits get released. We see all this new cool stuff that the pros are using and they're trying to shave grams and and grams of drag and, and go as fast as possible. And that all comes with a cost. So we're looking at halo bikes that perhaps you and I are not going to ride. We would like to, but we are performance riders who want to go fast, want to perform, maybe want to race, but don't have the deep pockets enough for those specialized type bicycles that sit at the top of the pro peloton. Uh, so we're often looking for bikes that still have a lot of that technology but at a either at a lower price point or at a more attainable price point. And so what's fun right now as in as we lead up to the Tour de France is we're seeing the new bikes the pros are riding but we're also seeing a lot of that technology come down to other uh, bicycles in the lineup made more for you and me the type of rider who's going to perform but we're not necessarily going to race uh and so Pinarello is out with two new bike lineups this summer it just turned summer. And so I am going to speak with today uh, Maurizio Bellin, the Chief of Operations, and Federico Sbrisa, Chief Marketing Officer at Pinarello. And they're joining me today from Treviso, Italy, uh, at the Pinarello headquarters. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Ciao, Dan. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful to have you, gentlemen. And the reason I want to chat with you today is Pinarello, it's been under Team Sky, Team Ineos riders for years. And that team sort of has a habit of winning the Tour de France and other uh, high profile races. And so, you know, no small part of that is the gear they use. So Pinarello has been uh, giving their bikes to Team Sky, Team Ineos for a very long time. What was uh, special about this moment for Pinarello to take a lot of that technology and develop the F and the X lineups, which we're going to talk about more in depth in a moment to talk, talk about the differences between those. But why this moment? What is it about the bike world right now where there's a customer or a client who uh, is going to benefit from the F line and the X line? Yeah. So it's Federico here speaking. So I think uh, we we started working on this project. It's about two and a half years ago. The goal was very simple. You know, we have a huge amount of cyclists, which are you know, and looking for, you know, a racing performance bike, clearly focusing on the proper geometry, the proper weight, you know, aerodynamic gains. 
And so we wanted to take basically this and make it available for a little bit wider range of customers because um, yeah, the main challenge with Dogma in particular at the moment is that it's an extremely you know, exclusive and customized product. So we are focusing a lot in custom colors, custom choices, and but you know we offer the bikes only with very premium specs. And so with this new F-Series, we're also able to, you know, we design a frame which has, you know, very similar, let's say, performances, but we also offer it uh, with the more less demanding, let's say, from a price point of view specs, uh, which makes it, of course, you know, more available for, for a wider range of customers. And also in terms of delivery times and availability, which is also quite important for, for the riders, we are also trying to improve to improve that, which, you know, has always taken some time to get a dogma. So. Uh, these, I would say, are the main the main reasoning behind. So it's a lot of it is really just practicality, being able to get your product into the hands of more riders. Pinarello has a, a very a certain cachet, more so in Europe than in the United States. But the United States, I mean, people are really starting to to give Pinarello a lot of notice because basically of the successes it's gotten in professional races. Should should customers who are going to spend money on the F or the X lineup? Are they going to be able to expect the same type of ride characteristics, the ride feel, the dogma lineup, or anything you know that the pros will ride, or is it going to be a different type of ride for for consumers? I mean, it's a tricky question. <laughs> <laughs> I would say there's a lot of uh, points in common, in particular the geometry. Uh, so you know, which is I would say the results of a you know very long history in Pinarellos in designing what we believe being the best uh, geometry for racing purposes. So yes, the geometry of F-Series and Dogma Fs is the same with the exception of the amount of sizes. As you probably know, Pinarello is the only <laughs> crazy brand offering 11 sizes on Dogma uh, because we are super keen about the ability for riders to choose a perfect positioning and get the best performance out of it. Uh, the F-Series comes in a little bit less sizes, so it's nine, which is still a big chunk more than what uh, most of the market is doing. Uh, and because of that differences, the size run is a little bit different compared with Dogma, but very similar, I would say, overall. There's a lot of similarities also in the way the, you know, the bike ride in terms of aerodynamics. Uh, I would say the main differences are to be looked into uh, the carbon fiber layups. For um, Dogma F, we are using T1100, which is, let's say, uh, above <laughs> the specs of anything else in the market. So we consider that to be something outside of the spectrum of the industry. Uh, while our F-Series, especially F9, F7, comes with Torate T900, which is, I would say, what most of the rest of the industry use as their more premium uh, carbon fiber layup. So, I mean, th that would say are other things. So in terms of rideability, you know, there's differences given by the materials and also some of the geometry of the bottom bracket. And maybe Mauricio can go a bit more in details. Uh, but overall, of course, the bike rides different. Dogma F is definitely a bit more of a harsh and stiff uh, bike because it's designed to win you know, to the Francis. I don't know if Maurizio wants to add something, maybe. Well, Maurizio speaking, uh, then, honestly, as uh, Federico said, the racing experience F-Series, of course, is very similar to Dogma, but we consider every time uh, we start a new project in Pinarello, we also consider with our long experience, long history of winning, the new three pillars when we make a bike. Weight, aerodynamic and stiffness. So those are a, a mix uh, able to build uh, a great performance bike because of, okay, weight is something there from the ages, but then we have now enormous data to collect 
and improve a bike nowadays in terms of aerodynamic and don't forget the stiffness. Why? Because the, the more the, the bicycle is stiff, the less about dispersion you have. So the, all the power that you put on your pedals goes into the chain and then on the tarmac. So, of course, we do the right balance of those three pillars. As Federico said, the, the raw material, the carbon fiber is one of the key points to keep those three pillars very high. But, of course, with F9 and 7, thanks to the T900, we keep the same high-end performance on a bike. So this is, a, honestly, a lot already about F-series. But as you said before, we also introduce X-series, which is a totally different concept for from F-series because we are not talking anymore a pure performance bicycle, but we are talking about a performance bicycle looking at uh, the endurance performance. So endurance performance means uh, stay hours on the bike with a different, let's say, position on your bike, able to use what nowadays we can use to give you the best bike for that purpose. And I'm talking about bigger tire clearance, up to 32 millimeters with a tubeless, of course, uh, tires to get a better rolling performance and, uh, of course, uh, more uh, shock absorbing from the tarmac. Flexi design on the rear chain state to absorb and to let the tubeless work together on the frame. And, of course, a special carbon fiber. In this case, for X-Series, uh, we, we are using T600 to have the right balance of those three pillars that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So let's let's unpack a little bit about that before we go on. First of all, just to be clear, there's two lines, the F line and the X line, and the F is more race-oriented, uh, go fast, you know, really stomp the pedals. In the X series, has some of those, those characteristics as well, but it's more of an endurance geometry for long days in the saddle. I just wanted to kind of recap that so that uh, folks understand that the two how the, how the bikes fall into the two buckets. So the big difference here, again, to recap, is that the carbon material, first of all, the specific carbon material that you're using is different from what you use on the Dogma. It's laid up differently to give it slightly different ride characteristics between the F-line and the X-line. So just wanted to kind of give that little brief recap. And just to, to sort of give people a sense of what it means to be made with different carbons, can you explain just briefly what is the the actual difference, the physical difference between like a T2000 carbon and something lower than that, a T1800 or, or lower? I'll, it's Federico speaking. I'll, I'll let Maurizio explain about the carbon fiber difference, but there's one very important point which wasn't mentioned <laughs> of the differences. I mean, the most important one is the geometry. So the carbon fiber is a consequence, but you know, the F-series as a geometry, as I said before, which is basically the same as Dogma, so it's a true racing geometry, very long reach, a very short stack, but the X series has a very, very different geometry. So definitely much higher reach and, st- and shorter stack. So that's the main big differences that make the, the you know, 80% of the differences. And then, you know, carbon fiber, of course, is very key. And Maurizio is going to explain the differences right now. Yeah, then Maurizio speaking, uh, as Federico said, carbon fiber uh, for us is the one of the key points every time, every time we work on a new project. So we work very close to uh, with the Torai. So Torai is our exclusive uh, carbon supplier from Japan. 
And uh, every time, even nowadays, for example, I'm doing the same for another project. So our my aim is to every time to find, to work with them, uh, the right uh, carbon fiber material able to fit into the project that we are working on. So the key point is to find the right balance between uh, strength of the carbon fiber and stiffness. So of course they uh, they they have different different carbon fiber materials able to fit with a special graphic that they propose to us uh, the the right needs that uh, we need and for F for example that's the reason because for F we split into two carbon fibers and not only one because that was not possible let's say to keep only one carbon fiber to embrace all the needs from uh, the customers from F-Series. And on the other end, this is also the reason because we select uh, the T600 from X-Series, because in that case, that was a, a really dedicated fiber able to work to together with the design, together with a bigger tubeless tire, uh, with um, the kind of uh, shock absorbing from the tarmac, and the flexi design, but stay stiff, as I say to mention to you before with the three pillars, stay stiff and giving anyway a performance product able to last performance wise, your performance wise. Now, when, when you're talking about carbons, for example, on the F-Series bikes, do you use just one type of carbon or can you use multiple to sort of tailor how the frame moves. I mean, do you need to do that or can you just do that with one type of carbon and then change the way the weave is oriented? No, we just change the way we apply the carbon layers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. So it's one yeah. one type of carbon all throughout, but just different orientations yeah. and, and layers and things yeah, like that. Yeah, of course, exactly. And so the other question is, you know, the dogma is, is sort of this tailored, like you said, this tailored bicycle for, you know, people at the highest end of the sports. Is that the same situation with the F-Series, which is more of a race-oriented bike, or is there a difference in how they're produced or anything like that? No, F-Series uh, is a pure uh, racing bike because, uh, as Federico mentioned to you before, we have 11 sizes for Dogma, but we still have nine sizes for F-Series. So nine sizes means a huge range of possibilities to accommodate every kind of your racing uh, orientation, let's say, because with nine sizing, you can really play with your frame size and not with the stem length or, you know, the seatback of the setup, especially because uh, nowadays we saw many users using uh, uh, according to the small offer of sizes that others have, using a very small size of frame because they want it small, compact, with a very short add-tube geometry. But then they are forced to use a very long stem. And with a long stem, the balance of the experience of the ride, of the, of the riding is not, well, it's not good enough because stem, longer stem are, are not stiff. And everything is not stiff nowadays. You're losing watts. And if you're losing watts on a racing bike, well, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, I just we're going to talk more about the X series, but I want to talk again just briefly about 
sort of what what the consumer gets with the F series that perhaps the dogma is is more exclusively for the high end racers. What what do you lose from taking that step down to the F? I guess I shouldn't say step down. It's a different bike. I mean, it's just a different purpose. But what if you could had to sum up the key differences between something like the dogma and the F series? What are the the, yeah. the three major things or four major things? It's, it's Federico speaking. I, I definitely wouldn't call it a step down. Right. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> uh, and also because it isn't. I mean, F nine, F seven, F five. It's you know uh, an extremely high end performance product. Uh, so I would I would definitely don't call it a step down about anything. So I would say the focus here really is dogma at the moment, uh, as all the other super high end bikes. I mean, um, more or less, you know. Uh, the, the price market uh, is, is is more aligned today than what it was a few years ago when Pinarello was used to be extremely expensive, I would say. Now I would say everybody had to raise the prices because of a lot of reasons. Group set, electronic, disc brakes, you know, transportation, new cost of materials. So the market price has been going very high. That made those bikes uh, extremely hard to be affordable for i would say the more committed cyclists sometimes because we get a lot of you know super strong uh, dedicated cyclists which you know does not have the price to pay for those bikes and because dogma we only offer we, we differently from most of the other brands which take their premium frame and just take it down we decided to develop a very specific frame to try to achieve the best for those races uh, also offering different set of components. So we do Gold Tigger, we go Drum Force, we have 105, we have Rival. So we are able to offer a series, uh, let's say, from of a very broad price range, while Dogma, it is not. It is only available with the premium specs, top-end wheels, uh, and you can also choose you know, custom colors, all these type of things. It's only available for Dogma. And also, again, that requires often a little bit of a longer waiting time. So, uh, you know, you... You know, very hardly you can buy Dogma, which you can get delivered quickly. You have to wait very often for, you know, because they're all basically, you know, custom painted in Treviso one by one. So it might take a while to get it. So I would say those are the main differences. It's availability of time, availability of options, uh, different specs, uh, different type of wheels, you know, all these things that makes also the bike a bit more, more accessible. For the rest, performance-wise, you know, they're both two great bikes, obviously, Dogma F uh, being designed for, you know, the top of the end races, it has a, a different, you know, a little bit more harsh, you know, a little bit more aggressive, a little more uh, responsive. Uh, there's also a bit more of aerodynamic uh, details if you look well into the frames, uh, the down tube, the seat tube, uh, seat post, uh, that, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, uh, difference in the design that obviously makes Dogma what we believe to be the most performing bike out there. So the F series definitely a, a little bit more uh, friendly for for those of us not in, not on a world tour team. <laughs> We've talked quite a lot about the F series bikes, uh, which are racing pedigree and aimed toward uh, those of us who are perhaps not on Team Ineos. <laughs> That's a lot of us. So this is a, a pretty key bike for the Pinarello lineup. Now the X series bike is a different animal altogether. Now, having ridden around Treviso before, I, lo- I love Treviso. It's a beautiful spot. I've done the Pinarello Grand Fondo. It's a perfect testing ground for uh, for racing bikes, but also for bikes where you're just going to be out all day long. You're not maybe trying to get across the finish line. You're just you know out to to go for a very long time. So, all of a sudden, long term comfort becomes a big consideration. In order to do that, in order to build 
comfort and still maintain performance, a new frame geometry was needed for the X series uh, as opposed to the F series. Can one of you uh, walk me through some of the key geometry differences between the two lineups of bikes? Yeah, Mauricio speaking. Uh, then let me start from a from a joke because <laughs> it's. I can tell you, it's a, there's a meme around. Uh, basically, tell me how many spacer handlebar spacer you have under your dogman, I will tell you your age. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I might be I might be okay. figuratively about 105 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is just to tell you that dogma. Uh, Dogma F as a really uh, racing geometry, and uh, we uh, we started to to get some feedback from the market, saying uh, something about uh, a more relaxed geometry, but able to enjoy the Pinarello feeling with a different perspective. Not anymore just uh, a pure racing geometry when uh, I had to add. Five or six centimeters of spacer down the stem because on the other end my back uh, uh, start to feel pain after twenty minutes. And basically, I mean, it, I just want to, uh, as example, talk about the, the shoes. No, I mean, if you want to ride a marathon and you are not comfortable with the marathon shoes, you just move to something with more cushion, able to support you into the four, five, six hours of the of the race. This is exactly what we started to on uh, F series. So we started to, to think about endurance as a definition. So what's the endurance definition for Pinarello? So we uh, find out that for us, endurance is just a mix, 80% performance and 20% only comfort. So 80% is still performance and I mentioned to you the three pillars, so on aerodynamic weight and uh, stiffness. So we consider, of course, those three pillars into this new platform and new perception of the user. Okay, so we get a shorter reach, longer stack. So we do everything, everything we can to adjust the position, able to avoid maybe one or two spacers below the stem and giving you a, let's say, endurance position, always as a performance position, by the way, mm -hmm. okay? So I'm not talking here about a comfort bike. Right, right. I'm talking here about an endurance bike. Yeah, and I'm looking at the, uh, the X-Series bike right now on my screen here, and what's remarkable to note, first of all, is that it, the frame looks very similar at first glance to the F series or even a dogma. It doesn't look like the endurance geometry we've, we knew, you know, five years ago where the top tube was so drastically sloping that it, I mean, it just looked ridiculous and it didn't really serve the rider that well either because the handling was so sluggish and the forks were so raked out and it was the predecessor of what an endurance bike should be. And now today we're kind of getting to a point where endurance is less of a dirty word it still seems like a pretty aggressive geometry. How will this feel in terms of handling? I mean, is there a longer rake on the fork? Is there a longer wheelbase? How, how will the handling actually feel out on the road compared to the F-Series? Yeah, okay. Uh, this job started to consider two uh, big aspects from this bike. One, of course, is the 
the geometry that we wanted to add uh, able to fit the handling of the user plus the tire clearance because uh, the X-series goes up to 32 millimeters that uh, we wanted to bring in this feature, the 32 millimeters on board on this new frame. And of course, uh, in order to do that, we had to adjust the geometry accordingly, able to fit into the endurance, let's say, feeling and behavior. How? 32 millimeters, for example, on the rear chainstay gave us a, a bit longer chainstay dimension, but we compensate the tire clearance with the longer chainstay with the flexi design. Okay, so we, let's say, work a lot to play the right balance between tire clearance, endurance, and geometry. Same for the front fork, because with the 32 millimeters, we had to increase a bit the volume, okay? And then we studied different angles option, and even for different sizes, because, uh, for example, the very first six sizes have a, an, a one rake and the others have a, another one. Why? Because together with the tire clearance, we really analyze deeper the behavior of the bike to have a real endurance performance bike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, and I've talked on this podcast quite a lot about the advantages of wider tires and uh, you know less rolling resistance, better absorption of impacts and things like that. Uh, hysteresis, which we've talked about fairly at length. But one thing that does change when you go to a bigger tire is the the bike's trail figure, uh, which has a pretty distinct impact on how the, how the bike handles. So, you know, I assume that part of what you're talking about here is having to tweak the geometry to account for the bigger tire, not only in terms of clearance, but also in terms of the trail figure and handling. Is that correct? Of course, then, yeah. Sorry if uh, you missed that. Oh, yeah. I explained wrongly, but yeah, that was my my message. Okay. Yes, great. I just want to make sure we got it right. And so now the the X series also features, which has something that has become sort of a feature on endurance bikes in particular. But Pinarello has actually incorporated into a lot of its bikes is the dropped seat stays. What exactly is the function of that? What does that do uh, for ride quality? Come back at the three pillars and uh, aerodynamic. Is, uh, is very important for us. So we started, we, we have been one of the first brands in the world to introduce this uh, solution and uh, part for, leg- for a legacy and part, of course, for benefits, we want to keep going to add these features on the, on the bike. So that's the reason. Mm-hmm. Is it more of an aerodynamic feature or a comfort feature or both? Aerodynamic reason for this uh, case because with the seat seat back mm-hmm. of the seat itself together with the chain state design we can play the endurance uh, game mm-hmm. let's say mm-hmm. so if you are talking about only the seat post it's just about aerodynamic okay got it uh, now I'm curious too. Now one of the uh, the features uh, mentioned in in the information I got is the battery for electronic shifting uh, has a port down at the bottom bracket shell instead of where we typically see it, which is in the seat post. Why? And this is you know for things like the Shimano battery and, and things like that. Why why the relocation? What was the point of that? The relocation uh, is uh, about uh, F series. Okay. okay. Because just just the F series. Okay. Yeah. 
because we have we have reduced the volume of the seat post to be lighter and keep anyway the aerodynamic performance. Okay. That's the reason of the reallocation. I see. So getting the battery out of the, the seat post just allows for more uh, flexibility in that area. I mean, it also lowers some of the weight, right? Like the uh, it puts the weight lower on the bike because you're moving the battery lower. It's only a few grams. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Not only, uh, I mean, also that the new seat post is much thinner than we were used to. So there's a lot of aerodynamic gain on the new seat post. Okay because of moving the battery. Good to know. So now, and, and just, I, and that was a mistake I made. I didn't realize it was just on the F series bikes, not on the X series. No problem. Correct. Okay, cool. Uh, so now I want to talk a little bit about when you designed these bikes, can you kind of summarize for those listening who might be considering one or the other of the bikes? I mean, a lot of times when you design a bike, you have a rider in mind. Who is the, yeah. who is the ideal in, in a very short summary to the people who might consider buying a bike and they're saying, okay, which one do I need? Who are the ideal riders for each bike? Just a quick summary. Yeah, very simple. F-Series as Dogma F and as every single bike, which has the letter F stamped on the down tube, <laughs> on the C tube. Uh, now that's letter, that symbol means those bikes have been designed together with the best athletes of that particular discipline, which can be road, time trial, you know, track, cyclocross, whatever. So every time you see the F letter on one of our bikes, that means they're designed with an athlete to win a race. Uh, and so the F series is part of the game because it's also, you know, designed for winning a race. Uh, of course, uh, as we said, uh, by offering that bike uh, with uh, with also different components and different group sets, also mid-tier and high-tiers, not only the top, uh, that makes it a bit more accessible to a little bit wider range of, of riders, especially maybe a little bit younger, a little bit more, you know, uh, money conscious uh, type of consumers. X series is going to start. It's it's a beginning of a new category of bikes. So a little teaser. You're going to see more <laughs> coming with that X letter in the future, uh, which is uh, the beginning of Pinarello to try to offer bikes not only to those you know super hardcore motivated racers or wannabe racers, but also to those you know new generation I would say of cyclists which you know enjoys spending hours and hours on a bike. Enjoy the pleasure of riding, you know, the going out with friends, enjoy drinking a coffee and then making a beautiful ride every day. And those riders, which are not actually looking to improve their own performances or to win races, they might be interested in looking at our X-Series and what's coming also next, uh, because those bikes are exactly designed for them. So uh, try to mix the perfect balance between the performance of a Pinarello bike, but also with features and geometry designed to spend more hours on a bike. I would not forget to add that, you know, modern pro cycling is getting, I think, as we all know, faster and faster and shorter. Uh, so also the athletes, you know, the type, the new bikes, the new generation of bikes is going in that direction, which is a bit contrasting with, I think, what most of us is doing, especially when you get more and more trained, you want to spend, you know, six, seven hours on a bike, making a beautiful ride. Uh, and so also this new generation of bikes is looking to that uh, purpose. Uh, it's not only about the comfort it's really about the spending six seven hours making a big mountain passes rides enjoying the landscape uh, but still being fast and enjoying the performance of up down and on the flat which you know we always remember pinarello is the all-around bikes so we want to make them performing on all terrains not only being you know uphill oriented or, or flat oriented so we always saw both have series and next series as dogma keeps the promise to be you know performing on all on all terrains uh, on all uh, on all situations so yeah 
that's that's kind of it. Excellent. So a lot of racing pedigree that's going into bikes that are uh, more tailor-made for everyday riders who maybe are not necessarily after the stiffest and lightest, which would uh, sacrifice all comfort, but instead going toward a bike that's usable in all conditions, all terrains, with wider tire clearance and all the modern trappings that we expect from bikes that we're going to ride every day. Uh, so that's an exciting development to be able to get into a brand like Pinarello, which has such a deep, deep racing pedigree. And now uh, you and I can also uh, more easily enjoy all of the wonderful design and uh, technology that goes into a Pinarello. Uh, Maurizio and Federico, thank you so much for joining me today from Treviso. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Dan. We are waiting for you here. All right. I'm, I, I, love, I love coming to Treviso. You be careful. I might end up on your couch sometime soon. Always <laughs> uh, Oh, all right. I'll book my ticket today. <laughs> and to those of you listening, thank you for listening. You can find out more on Pinarello.com to find out more about the bikes. If you have questions, please do feel free to reach out to me. I am at slow guy fast ride on Twitter and at slow guy on the fast ride on Instagram. And of course you can find Pinarello on all the social media channels and you can reach out to ruler magazine at ruler magazine on all social media. We are more than happy to pester Maurizio and Federico for you and ask them questions and get your questions answered. So feel free to reach out. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of the ruler magazine podcast. You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo Magazine or visit our website at Rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 